nice to see you this morning. My name is Rod. My pronouns are he, him, and um, yeah, welcome. I might, uh, yeah, this will be an interesting one this morning, so I might start by praying primarily for myself, but also for you. Loving God, uh, thank you for this community. Thank you for um, all the faces that when I see here, I am, my heart is filled with love and appreciation. I pray for this place that we might continue to walk the path of love and justice and kindness and that you might help us find the voices and resources and inspiration to continue to walk that path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so as you can see, we're doing a series, and we've been doing a series for quite a while, on humility, hospitality, and gratitude. In fact, it's actually radical humility, radical hospitality, and radical gratitude. We had a fireside on Friday, which is where we just meet in the read room and chat about some of the themes from what we're looking at, at uh, in church at the time, and there were a few people that were, wanted to talk about the radical word and why radical. Uh, we're not going to talk about it this morning, though. Uh, but it is radical humility, radical hospitality, and radical gratitude. We've just had three weeks on hospitable prayer. So what does it mean to pray for other people in a way that is hospitable, in a way that is kind and safe and which is life-giving? And I wanted to follow up on that by talking a little bit more about how things like humility, vulnerability, grace, and forgive us, and forgive us, forgiveness, <laughs> forgive me, might help create a community where it's possible to take the kinds of risks that are involved in praying for each other. Um, I'm probably going to, the last few times I've spoken, I've been pretty fast and loose with my notes. Uh, I think today I might stick a bit closer to them because I've actually worked a bit more on it this week than I normally do. Uh, so forgive me if I'm looking down a bit more than I normally do. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, a story of Jesus that speaks to things like grace and forgiveness. But And normally what we do is we look at the passage and we talk about it first and then um, Shane or Tamsin and I share some ideas. But today I'm going to actually give you some introductory stuff before we look at the passage. Mixing it up, just like having the welcome song at the end. Just crazy, crazy innovation this morning. Um, so bear with us. Hold your hats. Um, so what I want to say today was inspired by... Um, as pretty much everything is for me, by an episode of a podcast. It's a podcast called Revisionist History, which is one of my favourites. The host is Malcolm Gladwell, who's a Canadian journalist. And the thing that was extraordinary about this episode is it involved Malcolm Gladwell confessing his dangerous arrogance as a young journalist and how that may have cost lives. So he... He was talking about this 
research that came out in the 1970s in the States which encouraged the government to make it mandatory for all doctors to write prescriptions in triplicate. Bear with me, this gets good. Um, <laughs> and the idea was that they would write in triplicate and one would be sent off to the government, one would go to the patient and one would be stored by the doctor and they'd end up with these massive stores of prescriptions. And as a young journalist, he thought that was just ridiculous, overkill. Like, these people are doctors, they've been done all of these, these years at university, they've, they've signed off on the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. So it's just crazy bureaucratic overkill. And so he wrote against it and a lobbyist sent him all of this research to say this is why I think it's a good idea and he didn't even bother reading it. Uh, and then the opioid crisis hit and the, the very clear research came out that in states which had instituted this triple prescription protocol, the deaths, addiction, overdoses were way, 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 way down versus the states that did not have it. And so in this episode, he gets this lobbyist who's still alive to come in and talk to him and he says, I was wrong. I was arrogant. I was one of those small government conservatives that thought that government intervention was, you know, unnecessary in all of these ways. And if I had reported on that, if I had read your research and I had reported on it, lives may have been saved. And I was just blown away because I don't think I'd ever, or not as for as long as I can remember, encountered someone of profile admitting to kind of mistakes, beliefs when they were young that cost lives that said, I've now changed my mind, I was wrong. And it struck me as extraordinary that it was so extraordinary, that it was so unheard of for a public intellectual to say, when I was young, I was wrong, I was arrogant, I was dangerously naive, and it cost lives. And I think the other reason why it really struck me is because I identified so strongly with Malcolm Gladwell. Because I, too, as a young kind of church leader had a dangerous naivety and I pray that it didn't cost anyone their life but I know that it did a lot of damage to a lot of people. Um, this is a... Uh, <laughs> this is a photo to illustrate my point. For those at home, there's convenient kind of red eye in this photo of me that makes me look like a demon preacher. This is actually me giving my speech at my 21st. It's nothing to do with church. <laughs> but I thought, I thought it was an appropriate illustration to kind of burn into your brains. Um, this image of, yeah, me as a young, long-haired conservative. Now I'm a balding progressive. And I guess the thing about it too is, I mean, it's easy, and we will talk a little bit about how we can create these extreme polarised silos of, I used to be this and now I'm this and, you know. And even at the time, I was on a journey of challenging the 
complementarian, women can't preach or lead communities kind of theology that I grew up with in my church. I was questioning all of that. Um, internally, I was deeply, deeply wrestling with the conservatism of my church on queer issues and on gay inclusion. But what was undeniable, even though I was wrestling with those things internally, is that externally, it was all this egotistical attempt to kind of contain all my contradictions in some kind of perfect integrated pattern that to the outside looked like I was holding it all together and I had all the answers. And so I was going to university and doing philosophy and critical theory and trying to understand these things better than the kind of queer atheists in my tutorial so that I could dazzle them with my understanding of post-structuralism whilst also holding on to my conservatism so that I could be an, this enormous person who could contain all my contradictions in some kind of larger integrated whole. And in the end, it was, it was a dangerous, dangerous arrogance. And I would have done a lot less damage and made people feel a lot safer if I could have just been honest about what was going on for me internally, my own struggles, my own wrestles, my own inability ultimately to hold what I'd grown up with together with what I was learning. And I don't want to be, and I don't want this community to be a place where we're doing what is so common now on social media of frantically curating our past to make it align with our present so that we don't have to admit that we've changed. We don't have to admit that we feel like we were wrong in the past with all sorts of things that we said and did and believed and that we did harm. Um, I heard someone talking the other day about a lot of young people that are afraid to post anything even remotely controversial on social media, even if it aligns with the current orthodoxy about what it is to be progressive because of fear that in five, ten years' time, the lines of what is orthodox will shift and they'll find themselves, they'll find their younger self on the wrong side of history and someone will dig that up and they'll get cancelled. So people anticipating in ten years' time, I know this is, this is right now, this is the right thing to say now, but will it be the right thing in the future? And if I can't be certain, then I need to make sure that I say nothing, I take no risks in what I say and how I speak into other people's lives. So hopefully you can, you can see how this relates to the issue that we've been talking about, about taking the risk to speak into each other's lives, taking the risk to pray for each other, taking the risk to, um, to speak at all. It raises, yeah, that, the really difficult question of how as a community do we, do we resist those forces that are, that are really polarising our culture into this conservative silo and the progressive silo where everyone in the other silo is impure and everyone in this silo is pure. And if I happened to be, part of me was over there in the past, I need to pretend that that was never the case so I don't 
fall the wrong side of the uh, the policing of these silos. Anyway, I've talked us into a very low energy spot. <laughs> I'm aware of that. Um, but is that is that making sense? Is people kind of identifying with some of that? Um, and I'm really conscious that I'm speaking from the kind of privileged perpetrator perspective, and that uh, for many of you here, um, you've experienced that kind of polarization from the other side of having maybe grown up being um, demonized or seen as the problem in your conservative communities. And that, so the, the emotional kind of fallout of that is very different from my shame. Yours is more kind of perhaps managing anger or managing hurt or whatever it might be. So I'm very conscious of the fact that this takes different forms in different people's lives. But in the end, there's the same question of what we as a community do with our histories and how we find a way to be a community where we can bring our whole selves to this place, including all of our past selves, without fear. So that's, I guess that's the question. How do we do that? That's, that's what I want us to wrestle with. And that's where... Let's get that photo off. Sorry, I forgot it was there. <laughs> um, and let's have a little look at this passage with that in mind. There's some triggering language in this, um, talking about, you know, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, the, what image of God lies behind our reading of this passage and what we understand by the word a sinner can really affect the way we read this um, so just be, be conscious of that as we read it. But, um, yeah, I'm just wondering if this passage, uh, the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector, whether it has resources for us to think about how do we create a community where we can bring our whole selves and our, all of our past selves and know that we will be safe. Would anyone like to read it for us so I can... Thanks, Sarah. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. A Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Thanks, Sarah. So, no pressure at all, but any, anything stand out to you in this passage that might somehow be a resource or even 
if not a resource, somehow speak to this question of um, how we might be a community where we can bring safely bring our whole selves and our past selves. What kind of um, values, what kind of practices, what kind of habits might we cultivate as a community that means this is a safe place even for the parts of ourselves that we have guilt and shame about or big question I know and even if it's just a couple of minutes of silence to, to reflect on that that's okay too Ben Um, well, I guess one thing, I mean, Jeremy alluded to, obviously, money is a big issue that we talk about a lot at the church, um, which we don't talk about a lot, but um, like tithing and giving, uh, it's not something that should be you know, boasted about or it's very sort of personal, um, and there should be no shame for lack of giving or um, so as much as we need money to, it's alluded to, run this place. Um, yeah, it's a Pharisee who's, you know, boasting about his tenth of the income giving. Um, yeah, just not needed and doesn't really make people feel safe if they're not in a position to give anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, it's so insidious, that sense of hierarchy within community and the way you can become a very different kind of community and you think, oh, we've left that behind. But it's just the, the goalpost change and suddenly the way that you measure kind of worth in the community changes and you might overturn what it was that you grew up with but it's still it's it still gets in yeah i think the the word a sinner um probably means a lot at the time but it doesn't really carry much i wonder i wonder what the modern equivalent would be like be merciful on me, a racist or a homophobe or something, some other word that carries carries weight, evidently. And he's not being quiet about it. He's like really, really going for it. So, yeah, or an addict. It's yeah, it's incredible how. I mean, uh, Richard Raw, who's a, my favorite Franciscan, talks a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous being a much healthier model of church than pretty much any church because you're coming there with this default assumption presentation that I am um, I'm an addict. I am not who I want to be. Stepping through the doors is an is a incredible act of vulnerability and how wonderful it would be if that was what church was like. Just to keep the mic at the table. Um, I guess noticing the difference in responses between the two, uh, even zooming out from like the sinner language, uh, the first is very kind of like action-based. Like I do all this stuff, therefore I'm good. Um, and the pivot from that to going, um, remembering who you are or like ha claiming some kind of identity um, feels significant. And then also the kind of relatedness of the, it, to me the first seems comparative, like I'm related to the rest of the world and better than that. Uh, and then the latter being kind of relationship oriented to God or the other in a really, um, I don't know, kind of beautiful way, um, oriented just up, yeah. 
Yeah, I remember yeah, talking about this passage in the past and that and that notion of gaze, like where your gaze is. So the Pharisee's gaze is f- at others. I'm I'm better than all of these people, whereas the yeah the tax collector's gaze is yeah to the divine. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Um, one th- one thing that occurred to me thinking about the whole. I mean, it's interesting to think what the modern tax collector would be for us, and maybe addict, homophobe, whatever it might be. But I I think too. I was thinking about God and sin in this passage, and what's a a helpful uh, life giving framing of that. And I, I was thinking of the image of God as uh, a loving non-coercive mother who is in the presence of her child who has just pushed their sibling off the swing and broken their arm and what that in what that feeling for the child is like of of deep guilt and shame um i have hurt my sister brother sibling who i love and i now have to confront my parent who loves us both and that's not an easy feeling. I think we often talk about a non-coercive God and somehow that means that that lets us off the hook in terms of difficult feelings in relation to God. It does not. It just has a very different flavour when you have a God that loves you both and you have hurt your sibling. That's a very difficult conversation. But that God, the God-parent's goal in that conversation is not to punish but to reconcile. That's the fundamental difference. And it's easy to, to read this, especially if you grow up with the kind of Calvinist theology that I did, to go, this, this tax collector sees himself as worthless, as a worm, as totally depraved, and that's great. And then God, having seen him grovel, goes, all right, fine, you can, you know, you're okay. And how awful that is versus, yeah, that image of this loving parent who recognises you have done many things to harm your siblings and that causes me great grief, but I love you as much as them, so what do we do now? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Another table, finally. (laughs) Seriously. I speak at my table twice a week. Everyone at my table speaks a tenth of my income. Sorry. Um, My one is I feel like um, leaning into, like, relationships and the vulnerability of, like, actually being part of this community and connected to the relationships here um, is a way to be humble. And I just think of that, of, like, the people here who have seen me in some pretty messy and humbling situations. Um, And that's come from, like, a depth of relationship, I guess. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess just, like, for me to be here and, like, have Annika, who's, like, kind of seen me in, like, ups and downs many times over the last, like, seven, eight years, um, that for me is beautifully humbling. Um, rather than, like, church just being a place where I come and, like, just tap in and go, here's here's my little highlight reel of my life. Um, when it's relationship, like, you can't do the highlight reel. It's like, here's all the mess as well. So, yeah, that, that for me is the 
humbling of vulnerability there. Yeah, it just makes me think about all the screaming and crying and smashing of plates and all of that kind of stuff that happens in my home. And then you come here and be the, you know, serene, wise pastor person. And, yeah, just the, yeah, the insanity of that. And, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing just to point out that, that that's our goal. Our goal is a level of vulnerability and intimacy and involvement in each other's lives that, that's just not possible and where people see the truth and they don't reject us. And then the other side of that is the really good stuff. Um, and, again, it's the, the AA stuff where we get close enough that people see that we are an addict. They see that we are broken. They see that... Um, I've been listening a lot about masculinity recently and all of the characteristics of toxic masculinity and the way they, you know, in, in the life of someone like me, they're just constantly morphing into these new and more socially acceptable forms, but they're still toxic and dangerous. And to be seen in that, just to say to my, to, to say to my children, I am shaped by desperately, desperately unhealthy models of what it is to be a man, and I'm trying to be different, and I need your help. I mean, to be able to use that language rather than, you know, I've got it sorted out and I'm okay now. I used to have some issues with the patriarchy, but now I'm on top of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Any other thoughts before we... I'll really try to wrap up quickly. Any other things that people wanted to, to say in reflection towards the passage? Reflection towards the passage. That doesn't even make any sense, Rod. Matt. Um, I kind of got like half a thought, but I think there's something in the certainty of, I guess as I'm reflecting over, yeah, the kind of conservative theology I grew up in, there's something about the certainty um, and even the certainty of the tax collector, and uh, not the tax collector, the other guy. Um, yeah, there's something about the certainty um, that is really, yeah, that naivety. Um, and I think that's a core part of what is needed to keep a place open and safe for that humility is a lack of certainty about um, what you think and what you do and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I remember someone who kind of became a mentor of mine, um, kind of in the process of hanging out with them a lot. At one point they were like, I just need you to know that I'm going to let you down. Like, I'm not perfect. And I was like, aha, you just made me admire you more. Well done. <laughs> um, but thankfully he did let me down a lot. Um, and yeah, it's like, but that vulnerability of him being like, I want you to be close enough to see my flaws and I need you to know that, yeah. Um, and I think, I don't know, yeah, that's a bunch of thoughts, all right. Yeah, I love that, only the true Messiah would deny their divinity kind of stuff. <laughs> no, genuinely, I'm an asshole. I know, yes, I know. Yes, you would say that. No, please, believe me. Yeah. Uh, 
just flick through the things that we kind of already covered. Um, so just, yeah, very quickly, um, how this relates to prayer, as I said before, is I think, yeah, it's the same tension that we're talking about, you know, the, the pressure to appear a particular way, knowing internally that we are flawed, that we are limited, and when we speak into each other's lives, knowing that we can't be sure what the effects are going to be. We can't know whether the fruit will be good. And does that create paralysis and silence? Or yeah, is there a way that through kindness, forgiveness, grace, mutual vulnerability, we can find a way forward where we go, I'm going to take the risk to speak into your life, and, but I don't know what the effects will be, so you need to tell me, and I will be watching, not in a creepy way, but I'll be watching to, to see what the fruit is, and if I discern that I've um, spoken harm into your life, I will be the first to say that and to revisit that thing that I spoke. Yeah, I just hope we become a community where, yeah, it's safe to be vulnerable about the ways that we have changed and it's safe to be vulnerable about things that we still believe that kind of belong to the wrong camp or whatever it might be and aware that, there, yeah, there's just as much danger to be a progressive Pharisee as a conservative Pharisee. Um, so what we do for communion in our community is we come forward... Again, only if you feel comfortable and only if you want to participate. Um, but everyone is welcome if you do want to participate. Take a little thing of Jesus juice and um, the first person up can crack some of the crackers with the knuckle of love and then you take a little bit of cracker with your juice and then when we've got a little circle, a loose circle formed, um, we will pray and eat and drink. I created this little... Um, what I call a little liturgy this week, um, inspired a little bit by um, this interview I heard with a couple. She had a massive brainstem aneurysm burst and only barely survived, and for the last 17 years her husband has been her carer. And just that incredible struggle that she's been through to claim her worthiness of that care. Uh, so inspired by that, I created a little liturgy. You'll see that there are two lines where it says all, and that's where you're allowed to join in if you like, um, but you don't have to. But yeah, so come forward if you want to, take a juice cracker, then when we're in a circle, we'll read this and then we'll eat and drink. <laughs>